Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we talk to experts from the media industry about how journalists can do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. This week, we're talking about virtue signalling, two words that most of you probably understand as someone backing an idea to show the world that they are a good person. It's basically another word for grandstanding. But talking about a cause doesn't have to be coming from a bad place. In fact, creating content that speaks directly to your audience's moral beliefs is an effective way to get them hooked and share it widely on social media. Still, some news outlets would have reservations about such a tactic. Joining me today is Ollie Dugmore, the head of news and politics at Joe Media, an entertainment news publisher aimed at young British men. He's also the face of many of Joe Media's most popular videos. Part of the reason why their videos rack up millions and millions of views is because they know how to sell the story to their audience through virtue signalling. That can take the form of jokes and satire, a tongue-in-cheek headline, or tagging Donald Trump on Twitter, of course when he was on there. But like most things, there are limits that you need to be aware of. We'll discuss all of this coming up after a quick word on the sponsor of today's episode. This journalism.co.uk podcast is supported by Memberful, which is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience. You can monetize your fantastic newsletters through Memberful with no need to connect to a third-party email provider. Try it for free on memberful.com, where you can also take up pro and premium plans to really start cranking up and customizing your membership offering. Ollie, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast and happy new year as well. Thanks for jumping on the show. Happy new year to you too, Jacob. Thanks for having me. How are things? How's work? Yeah, not too bad. Just back this week. Um, obviously, Parliament back yesterday, which was good. Um, yeah, just sort of setting up projects and looking at what we're going to be doing longer term um, on the Politics Joe team over the course of the next year. Yeah. How does 2022 look for you? Big focuses, yeah. Um, housing, housing is something that's very important. Well, particularly to our audience, um, the Joe.co.uk audience is young and British, and um, housing is an issue that's enormously important to those people. Obviously, buying a house is a very expensive thing these days. Um, so it's something that we try to cover, cover in in decent in a decent level of detail. So that's going to be a big one for us this year. Health as well. Um, at the end of last year, we published a film about the sort of, well, yeah, I call it an epidemic, drug death, alcohol death epidemic in Scotland um, and sort of its its consequences for the, for the male population there, its causes. We've got a film coming out soon about an alternative policy to prohibition. We went to Lisbon 20 years ago. They were, you know, they had the highest level of drug deaths in Europe and now they have one of the lowest. So we went there to kind of look at and understand what they're doing there in terms of policy in relation to, uh, well, here, illegal drugs, um, personal finance as well, you know, personal debt, I think is going to be a big story this year. Lots uh, pricking my ears up there that seems relevant to my life. So I'll be sure to keep an eye out on on all that you're doing there. Busy year ahead, of course. Um, Joe Media does incredibly well on social media, particularly with your young audience in mind. When we've spoken to Joe Media in the past, part of that success has been attributed to these two words called virtue signaling. Um, I wonder if you could just tell me what do those two words mean to you? Sure. Well, virtue signaling to me, I mean, generally, if I was to use it outside of a a journalistic context, virtue signaling is someone sharing or saying something that kind of indirectly 
speaks to a quality or characteristic that they see in themselves. Um, so that's an incredibly good definition, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you had that rehearsed. <laughs> uh, no, I no, I, no, I didn't actually. Um, but when it comes to to social media, you know, if you're posting or you're trying to, you know, you're trying to increase your reach, you're trying to increase your page views or video views, or whatever the metric is shares are an enormously important component of that whether it's retweets on on twitter um story sharing on instagram or you know the term share in its most literal sense would be facebook right although that's a platform that is is in decline with our audience so if you're trying to get people to share your 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 content well why 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 would they share it well one of the most immediate and obvious reasons they will do that and it's not the only one but it's one of them is because it says something about themselves they're trying to communicate a characteristic about themselves. Maybe it's that they're trying to demonstrate solidarity with a particular social justice cause, or they're trying to demonstrate interest in a certain political issue. And if you can understand that and 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 what people's sentiments are in relation to that, then yeah, it can impact significantly impact the sort of the, the numbers and the metrics that you're seeing. I know I would add as well, this isn't um, a necessarily particularly new concept. I mean, in, in terms of sort of newspapers, you know, the editorial line of, of a newspaper, if you want to, like at a local level, let's say local journalists very sensibly um, reflect the views of their local audience. They champion local causes. They champion the local area because it reflects what their audience thinks about the place. Um, national newspapers do it as well in terms of politics in, in, in the way they they speak, echo and pronounce about certain issues. It's 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 in a way that, first of all, gets people to buy the newspaper, but then second of all, confirms something that they think or yeah, affirms their beliefs. In October 2020, the BBC cracked down on virtual signalling when it published a list of social media guidelines, with staff warned against backing campaigns or giving views on controversial policies. It's understandable for a public broadcaster like the BBC, of course, to be concerned about the political impartiality of their reporters in this way. But commercial news outlets like Joe Media don't have the same obligations. My next question to Ollie is whether he and his team ever have concerns about virtue signalling. There are certain stories or there are certain aspects of our output where you know it would be wrong to editorialise in that way. Um, you have to strike a balance. So, you know, for example, if if I'm producing a video that is the, the format I would describe it as, as a video essay, i.e. it's me speaking down the lens, you know, giving my take on something, and it's filmed in a clever way with sort of, you know, dynamic social editing, et cetera. That's a place where that kind of virtue signaling is apparent, if you like. Um, it's essentially an op-ed, right? It's, it's this, is what, this is what I think about X. By contrast, if you're going to, to use the, the Scotland film that I mentioned earlier as an example, you know, that's, that's a pretty objective story. That's 1,339 people have died of, died of drug-related causes in Scotland this year. That's a ginormous number when accounted proportionally for population in Scotland what's causing it now obviously I guess you could you could go from there and say yes there is there's going to be an element of perhaps of virtue signaling in the way people interact with it because you can go and say well someone's going to share this because they want to demonstrate that they care they want to they want to show that they have an interest in this really significant social problem that Scotland is facing um, but it's not present in the reporting it depends on the format and what type of journalism you're doing, where, whether whether, it, whether it's necessarily present. Well, let, let's take the example of housing that you mentioned is going to be a key beat this year, because you right, you rightly said that this is something that a lot of your audience is going to care about. This is a situation that has immediate impact in their life. So exactly what sort of discussions we have in the year to come, um, thinking about virtual signaling, how to cover it, 
yeah so to take it in 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 the sense of from our audience's perspective and and you know championing our audience if legislation or policy so for example planning reform which is something that that boris johnson is trying to force through and actually is quite unpopular with a lot of his with his backbench right party because <laughs> it, it it's sort of the nimbyism right that that has affected that a, that a lot of sort of rural england likes to uh likes to hold to and, and and i understand why because it's meant that they've essentially they bought houses 30 years ago that have just endlessly appreciated in value which is you know good for them their retirement sorted um they have this incredibly valuable asset but the other side of it is that it's incredibly expensive for anyone to get on the housing ladder so for example if efforts were being made to inhibit or prevent you know cheap housing stock being built being produced it's the sort of thing where we would then take a line on it and say you know this is going to make it harder for you to get on the housing ladder this is going to make it more difficult for you mm. and we think it's wrong generally speaking we do take a position a line on things and we do try to be objective and, and and cover both sides of it but i think there's particularly in politics there's off there's often in my view anyway a right and wrong and maybe that's a totally subjective thing sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but yeah this is an interesting question because i feel like on social media, it's it's one thing to present the story, but there's another thing what to do with the story. And at least having the news organisation, the reporter there to say, well, this is actually the consequence of these facts, gives that story a little bit more life, a little bit more something to do with that article or, you know, video or whatever it is. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you're right. And I think particularly interesting that that point you've made there about the journalist, because I think that's a that's a trend you're seeing in in the, the new journalism substack etc is that in in a similar way to you know other forms of influencer almost you're you're seeing now younger audiences affiliate particularly with with certain journalists you know and this it, it's most prominent in the US where where you have these massive substack subscriber platforms now where people literally pay to hear what one person has to say about a thing and i think it's less pronounced on social media platforms but it is still present people have individuals rather than necessarily um, publications. So, for example, let's take Morning Call, the New Statesman's very successful uh, email newsletter. I think people follow that because they're interested in what Stephen Bush has to say about politics and not necessarily because it's a New state Statesman product. It'd be interesting, actually, when he goes to the FT to see see what happens in relation to that newsletter and how that and how that audience adapts and changes. Have you seen any examples of what happens when you tread this line too much with regards to young people, if you virtual signal too much? I'm asking, can you overdo it, basically? And, you know, what are the consequences of that? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure you can. I wouldn't want to, I, also, I wouldn't want to overplay or overhype, like, how its role in what we do. I wouldn't say it's, like, the most prominent aspect of our, of our journalistic reporting. But, yeah, um, there are there are places or elements, I guess, where if you were to stray too far into opinion or attaching value judgments to things that your audience might push back on it but that's kind of that in a way is the beauty of social media because you know if someone if someone doesn't like something they have as much of a space to be able to tell you they don't like it as you do to, to push it to them and they do they do call out things can you give me an example of an editorial meeting where you've kind of discussed these things you know a particular story and, and you thought you know, we've got to take a position on this. We've got to play into this kind of um, virtual signaling kind of mindset. 
Okay, so let's take let's take something like um, like dodgy contracts, for example, during during the pandemic. This, it's a big story. It's been reported by a lot of outlets. Something that I think Joe does very very well is the combination of particularly politics. Joe is the combination of light and shade. So mixing humour into what is on the face of it a very a very upsetting story for a lot of people. I.e., that whilst whilst people were losing their jobs, losing their loved ones, in stuck in social isolation, other people were profiteering. Now, a lot of news organisations, and I'm quite rightly so, they're entitled to do this, play a lot of their journalism incredibly straight. Great, good for them. But something that we do often is we mix humour in. So it's, we'll kind of, whether it's sort of like a pithy Instagram caption, or maybe we would, we would produce like an Instagram carousel of all the things that X person could 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 buy with with the money they've creamed off the taxpayer, or, you know, something like, something like that. Um, and that, communicates to our audience that there's there's okay here's the story this is what we're telling you but second of all um satire is a very long tradition in 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 this country but you know here's a way of highlighting the truth and then also laughing about it and that often people there's a lot of people in the country who think like that you know british people are piss takers and they love they love to laugh at themselves they love to laugh at their friends um and you know be like oh well this situation's appalling but you know at least at least we at least we can all make a joke out of it that's how you give someone an opportunity so you've got you've got the straight reporting you've got the humor and the humor is what then enables someone to go oh i'm going to share this with people because it, it communicates i understand the story but i'm also in on the joke i can have a laugh and it, it communicates that about themselves if that makes sense that's a superb example and it absolutely does make sense again i'm keen to understand the limits of this so with that particular story the the dodgy contracts in covid what was off the table? What would what would have been too far in that example? Um, well, the obvious the obvious ones would be legal ones. So you know, libeling anyone. <laughs> um, mm. it obviously, like this, it's the same. It's the same ethics and standards you'd apply to anything else you publish. So accuracy. Mm. Um, there's a line to tread between being factual, being satirical, and I, it's one that I I think we get right. But you know. You tread a fine line where if you sort of make an exaggerative joke about something that it could be interpreted in uh, as literal as 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 a statement of fact. So you have to get that tone. You have to get the tone right every time. And that's and that's not easy. I mean, satire is something you either get or you don't. I mean, it's not just something you can pick up and do. You've got to work at it. How have you done that? <laughs> uh, early days in the pandemic, myself and a, a colleague who no longer works with Joe, actually, Joe Gilmore, we produced this kind of like mock interview segment about um, how like 5G was causing coronavirus. So it was like, it was like the truth. The, sh- the show was called The Truth. It's all satirical, but Joe was literally saying to me, and it's it's kind of like back and forth. He's playing, he's playing like an Alex Jones type YouTube uh, new media host. Yeah. And I'm playing like a, like a straight deadpan reporter. And he's being like, but but he's like, but the 5G towers are activating the toilet rolls that everyone's that everyone's hoarded in their store cupboards. And this in turn is causing coronavirus. And then I kind of come on and say, well, no, actually, there's no evidence for that. This is this is what we understand about the transmission of coronavirus so far. This was very early days in the pandemic. Yeah. By the way. So it was like there wasn't much wasn't much to go on in that sense. But it was like you kind of we were hamming up. Even though he's literally he's he's literally saying like oh yeah you know five uh, G is causing coronavirus but he's so over the top and he's saying that the bog roll that everyone's hoarded over the first few weeks of the pandemic that has a role in it obviously that's a, that's a that's a comedic signal to your audience that it's not serious mm. and then we also had the kind of the deadpan rebuttal 
from me but that would be an example of something where if the tone wasn't right you would never want your all and it obviously would be a judgment call we would make and we were happy with it but you would never you would never want to publish something which could actually be willfully or otherwise misinterpreted as as, as, as spreading misinformation yeah you you got to make sure people get the joke right and it sounds a little bit jonathan pie inspired yes yes like <laughs> um yeah his 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 stuff is so so viral isn't it it's um it's extraordinary he really hit a chord over the last few years didn't he brexit in particular i'm going to play you a short clip now from joe media's most successful video which was a vox pop in 2019 asking people to estimate the cost of u.s healthcare, like for childbirth or calling an ambulance it got a staggering 85 million views across all platforms and remember at the time there was a big uncertainty around the future of the NHS here in the UK and the costs of healthcare should it be privatised and operate in an American-style system. Take a listen. I wonder if you could tell me how expensive you think calling an ambulance out to your location is in America. I guess it depends on like where you live. <laughs> uh, it really does. Um, I can't even, is there a price for that? Yes. Jeez, um, $100, $200? Two and a half grand. For what? Why? Why? Give birth by C-section, yeah. and you would like to hold your baby after you've given birth to it. Actually, yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, you have to pay to do that. Yes. To hold my own child that I've been carrying inside of my womb. <laughs> Sorry, I was. <laughs> uh, but yes, yes. Jeez. It's not actually that expensive. Right. <laughs> Charging me. I'm going to punch you. Yeah. Um, not you, but yeah. the doctor. Um, like $100. $40. $40. For skin-on-skin contact. <laughs> what do you think of the NHS? Literally the gift that keeps on giving. Literally. Literally. People are so dumb for taking advantage of it. And I don't want it to change. You do need to watch the video to get the full effect, but you get the gist. There is a very particular tone in this video which is both alarming and condemning, but playful at the same time with lots of really engaging moments. It goes back to Ollie's point before on light and shade, but it's also a very striking example of virtue signalling at play. Ollie tells us now how that story came together, and as it turns out, it was actually a product of a failure. So it was during the 2019 general election and uh, we had been at, I'd gone to the memorial service for Jack Merritt, who people may or may not remember was a victim of the London Bridge terror attack. And in the morning we'd gone to the memorial and I'd kind of been sent, you know, with a stick mic to get voices from his loved ones, his friends, his family. Um, and we we were we didn't turn up at the start. We were there at the end, and uh, I basically bottled it. I mean, it was there. It's one of the only times I've ever done that. But I just couldn't stomach going up to these people who were like very clearly grieving. It was the end of the service. People were crying, and I couldn't face sticking a camera and a mic in their faces and asking them for a comment. Uh, so we went back to the office empty-handed which is something that we not we don't usually do. And obviously, as most most anyone in journalism will know, is pretty much a cardinal sin. Um, and from that, we're then like, right, we need to go out and, and produce something good today because we've let ourselves down here. Uh, so we sort of brainstormed. And one of the things I like about Joe is it's, it's a young team. It wasn't just politics team talking about it. It was the entire editorial team brainstorming these ideas. Settled on, settled on doing that, went out, did it. And obviously, I wasn't expecting it to do... 85 million views 
but the people we spoke to were just so expressive and funny and engaging that by the end of it you're like oh actually this is we we've, we've got something pretty good here vox popping is always like that right you don't know what you're going to get but you you really hit a zeitgeist in that moment didn't you i mean it's just it was right at that moment when there was so much uncertainty around what was happening with nhs the you know the potential with uh healthcare costs going through the roof um was do you feel like that was virtual signaling at play there oh well yeah for sure in, in, in well in certain ways so um you're right about kind of zeitgeist people sometimes ask me like and what the key is to making successful video and there isn't really anything secret about it it's well-produced content you know shot well edited well in the language of the audience and it's timely timely is super important you have it has to be quick it has to be relevant it has to be what people are talking about and if you do that as we did that day shot it in the afternoon published the following morning whilst it was being spoken about then yeah it's then it hits a chord in terms of virtue signaling yeah so the cell we used on the tweet was um was like i can't remember it was it was a pull quote at the at first line second line was then at donald trump the nhs not for sale yeah and sometimes sometimes you like tease one of the key sound bites right at the beginning and one of them was like ten thousand pounds for a baby kind of thing you know and and, and again yeah, yeah, that yeah. captures it you're like bloody hell what <laughs> kind of yeah 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 exactly exactly and so the yeah the second part of the sell on twitter was at donald trump our nhs is not for sale now that obviously that is like eminently shareable sentiment mm. it's super route one that's initially where it started but then all the views that follow after it are from sort of other people sharing it particularly in america actually the, the huge huge audience in america on that video obviously because we, we were talking about american healthcare, um and that it then became yeah like bernie sanders shared it etc and obviously his motivation for sharing is demonstrating that there is like an alternative there is a different way mm. there is an alternative healthcare system and it was the shock and the the expressiveness of of the contributors in the Vox Pop that kind of was what communicated that for them. That's what they were signaling by sharing it. Yeah. Let me ask, you know, how different is this to what we're kind of used to with regards to British political journalism and the British um, tabloid press? I mean, you said quite correctly at the beginning of this interview, you know, these ideas of virtual signaling is not too far away from ideas of partisanship. How much is you know similar now? How much has changed in, in your estimation? It's just a newer form. So take one of the tabloids during this pandemic, right? The um, I think it's the Daily Star, isn't it? The Daily Star had like that cutout mask of Dominic Cummings yep. on the front page. Um, and they've done a few other front pages like that. Now, first of all, I don't want, I'm not like, I'm not a big Daily Star cheerleader. I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's not, it's not my favorite newspaper uh, if, if I was ever to have one. But they... What they're doing there is is making a massive news story fun or they're adding a joke and that kind of tabloid ease, it's a similar concept in terms of doing things on social. Like not in terms of sensationalism, but it doesn't have to be boring. The stories we're telling are of enormous importance to people's lives, to the direction that the country's going in. These are huge issues. It, it doesn't have to be stale. It doesn't have to be dull. Why? Why? Why would you? Why would you remove a line of humour or a piece of entertainment or something emotional from the story when, when it means it can resonate with you, with your with your audience? It doesn't have to be a, a piece to camera and then you know dry interview with politician A and dry interview with politician B. I, that's the way a lot of that's the way it, things often are, but it doesn't, why should it have to be like that? What? Because everyone else does it. 
No. Um, and if, if anything, you're doing your audience a disservice because you're not entitled to have someone read your copy. You're not entitled to have someone watch your stuff. You have to produce something good enough for them, for them, for them to want to. Particularly now when it's so competitive online, there's so much, you know, other stuff that they could be watching right now. What you said there is really kind of enlightening. You know, you've got to earn their attention basically in this digital social media landscape. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, t- totally. Do you. you have to? You have to earn the view. You have to earn. You have to earn the click. And you're not just the the crucial point you just made there is that you're not just going up against other journalists. You're not just going up against the other newspapers on the stand outside outside the coffee shop. You're going up against literally everything on Facebook. That 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 level of competition means that what you produce has to be engaging and interesting. Um, and in, particularly in relation to, to our audience at Joe, young people, young men don't overly consume traditional media. What John Ronson recently said to me in an interview, he, legacy media, which he said was like, it just used to be called the media when I was young. <laughs> but, um, you know, they don't, younger people don't consume media on, on, in those formats. They don't buy newspapers. They don't watch linear TV. Maybe they listen to a bit of the radio when they're driving somewhere. So they might catch a Radio 1 bulletin or, you know, a, a, news, a news beat or whatever. But generally speaking, they're not, they're not getting their, their news in those, in those traditional ways. They're getting it on social media if they're getting it at all. It is a disservice to not inform those people about what the world around them is like, what is happening and how it affects them. And if the way you have to do that is produce something that, yeah, has a sense of humour or speaks to a wider truth about the world and therefore leads people to share it. Well, I think that's an enormous good because you're informing people about the material conditions of their lives in, in a way that they perhaps would never have never have known about if you hadn't have done it. And to put it quite plainly, in your example, 85 million people saw something factual and relevant to their lives and at least had the journalistic rigour involved in the process. Yeah, no, no, totally, totally. And, you know, in in terms of that Vox Pop, it's not uh, just straight up objective presentation of if you were in America and broke your leg and needed an ambulance, this is how much it would cost you. But the information you're being presented with, it's basically it's, it's essentially exactly the same. It's just being presented in a in a more provocative is probably slightly the wrong word but um you know engaging like like a fishing hook almost you know what i mean it's uh it, it, it catches you and and then and then once you get to the end of it you then figure out and learn so where does interviewing come into all of this a few months back ollie attended the labor party conference and interviewed jeremy corbyn the former labor party leader This interview is not like your typical grilling you'd expect from a political journalist. Instead, it's laid back, relaxed, and the pair even share a joke or two. In the comment section, the audience are praising the interview, essentially for allowing Corbyn to speak. And as Ollie explains next, his intention going into the interview is not to hound them into a soundbite, but it's not to be confused with cozying up to a politician either. It's about getting them to open up and get the clearest summary of their position. that's a criticism I get um, most often and, and I get it for whoever I interview, uh, whether it's Corbyn, whether it's uh, someone like Peter Hitchens, Douglas Murray, Rory Stewart, uh, Sadiq Khan. It's, it's fair cop. My, my interview style is not aggressive. It's not Rottweilery. There's, there's a couple of reasons for that. I'm trying to get the purest expression from the subject of what they think about something as possible and set that in the context of we're on digital, we're not on broadcast. So there's 100% there is a place for aggressive, confrontational interviewing. Piers Morgan during the pandemic, for example, did a fantastic job of it. 
interrogating government ministers and oftentimes demonstrating their ineptitude. But he has to adopt those tactics. What? Well, he doesn't necessarily have to, but he does because if you're doing GMB and you know you've got a 10 minute interview slot and then there's an, and then there's an ad break as a politician, you buy yourself time. You you dance around the question. You avoid answering it because, you know, if you can survive for 10 minutes, they're going to cut away. Now, we have no such restriction in terms of what we're doing. So if someone wants to dance around the question or not answer it, I can allow them to say what they're trying to say. And then I can just ask them again. And I don't have to, you know, chew their head off, get into them. So there's that reason. And then there's also from like a, I guess, a relatively cynical point of view is that there are plenty of people doing that style of interviewing. There are plenty of people who are, you know, aggressive and like, don't get me wrong. I've, I've done that, you know, for, uh, Brexit, there's a Brexit party guy back, maybe it was 2018, 2019. I can't remember. There was a by-election in Peterborough and um, he was chatting some absolute nonsense about the EU sort of like mandating what children uh, could have for lunch in school uh, and like school holidays, term times, etc. And I wasn't aggressive. I wasn't confrontational, but I just, you know, I was just saying to him, well, what evidence do you have for that? Because it's not true, is it? And that for me, you, it, because I had the time, the space, it, does, it doesn't have to be aggressive. You don't have to cut people off. Um, and just to add one more thing, particularly if the person you're interviewing isn't a uh, an elected official. So if the person you're interviewing is is a commentator, is, is you know, someone like Afua Hirsch or Peter Hitchens, well, at, at that point, you're then, in my view anyway, you're, what you're trying to do is just understand what they think and, and why they think that way about something there's less of a, a need to provide the counterpoint because in my view to take, to take to those two those two people again hitchens hirsch two people with very different political views very different sides of the spectrum and you achieve balance as a publisher on the whole across across all of your output so for example you know if if i if we're publishing like a, a clip from the house of commons uh like a one minute whatever Keir Starmer says something at pmqs it's very difficult to achieve balance um, objectivity in the space of that clip of him saying his thing however over the course of six months a year you can achieve balance by equally clipping up and, and promoting people like you know the prime minister jacob rees mogg whichever government minister is saying something so you achieve balance by here okay here, i've got the purest expression of what peter hitchens thinks about something here and now i've got the purest expression of what someone like afua hirsch thinks about maybe the similar topic here and over the course of both of those interviews we've therefore achieved balance and provided different perspectives to our audience that's interesting what you said there does joe media have a political leaning and would you approach an interview differently depending on what side of the spectrum your interviewee was on yeah our, our political position is, is progressive um it's not it's not party political affiliated we're we're progressive and it's because we re, we reflect our audience as any publisher does you know it goes back to that local journalism point um you champion your local area you champion your audience and that's that's what we think about the world my approach generally i mean this is like a massive generalization obviously but it's what does this person think about x why do they think it what are the alternatives how do they answer those criticisms whoever i'm interviewing i try to you know, be um, universal in my in my approach and give everyone as, as fair a crack of the whip as possible, regardless of what they think, regardless of whether I agree with them uh, or not. I don't think it's my place. One of the first things I was um, I was taught as a journalist by um, I started at the tab and I can't remember whether it was the guy who started it, Jack Rivlin or my editor at the time, Grace Fielmer. But one of them, uh, 
one of them said to me, nobody cares what you think. That's a hell of a thing to be told, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's like in that, in that situation, absolutely no one is coming there to hear what I think about something. They're coming there to hear what Corbyn, Sadiq Khan, Hitchens, Rory Stewart, James Cleverly, whoever, they're coming to hear what they think. And it's and it's and it's my job to to tease that out of them, to challenge them, um, to understand the why. But no one wants me to be pronouncing about what I think about X or Y. Is it fair to summarise then that by taking a more relaxed stance, the trade-off is that you in turn get them to reveal more about themselves, to be to have the space and time to open up a bit more to you, to give your audiences kind of the insights and sound bites that they really need. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. My job is, is, in that sense is, is as much to listen as it is to, uh, to question. You're in the position of the viewer in that sense. Um, yeah, you're trying, you're trying to get someone to, 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 to give the purest expression of what they think about something. What is the main skill that has served you well in your career? Listening. I've got a follow-up. How do you become a better listener? When I say listening, it's 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 not necessarily uh, the actual the literal meaning of what someone is saying. It's taking it on the whole, and it's it's called active listening is the skill, and it's it's this thing I actually find hardest to do. It's something I work on a lot because when you're in an interview situation and someone's speaking and you're following the the line of argument, and then you're thinking, is this answering my question? Is what they've just said true, etc. And then trying to remember all of that once you actually get out of it, absolute killer for me. I really struggle to do it. My editor often says to me, "Oh, what the lines?" And I go, "I don't know what the lines were." <laughs> I have to go back and rewatch the tape. Um, but yeah, it's uh, trying to listening not just to what someone's saying to you in that moment, but thinking about it in the context of what they've previously said to you, what they've previously said publicly, and uh, and uh, whether it's true or not. I guess. Um, I, I resonate. It's a lot to hold on to at any one moment in time, isn't it? It's so hard to juggle all of those things, trying to remember all they've said, what are the key things, and what's my follow-up question as well. I think I've watched a few interview of yours where your segues are just really good from question to question. Um, do you have any sort of single tip, single best advice on on how to on how to master the interview segue? Yeah, just 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 tear up the questions. I mean, I um. Ian Hislop was taking the piss out of me. <laughs> I asked him and he was like, God, you're good. I'll see you on GMB soon. Um, he, because uh, he said something about private eye covers and I was like, well, Ian, look behind you. There's a lot of them we'll talk about. That's exactly the one I was thinking of, actually. <laughs> right, okay. Well, okay yeah, so he was taking the piss out of me. <laughs> the, it's, it's, um, it's, if you have a written order of questions, if you have, this is what I'm going to ask and this is the order I'm going to ask Ian, it's going to come off clunky and and unnatural. So, if you are going to take your your written questions in, uh, don't be tied to an order. And if if the subject starts talking about something that you have a later question prepared on, ask them it at that moment in time because it will have a, the conversation has a much more natural flow rather than going, oh, and but you know uh, you spoke about this earlier, but I just want to come back to it like twenty minutes later. It's a bit confusing. Um, one of obviously it depends on who you're interviewing and. And whatnot, but one of the one of the most scary but also freeing things you can do is not take the written questions in with you, <laughs> um, because and it, obviously it's different if you're doing print versus broadcast. Because if you're doing print, then it doesn't really matter whether there's a flow to the conversation necessarily. I mean, you want to build a rapport with your subject, but you know if if it's disjointed and you circle back around to something, it's you can you can hide it in the copy, so it's not it's not as obvious. But when you're doing broadcast, obviously the flow to something is really really important. 
And if you want that to be totally natural, then the way to do that is to obviously research your questions and know your questions, but not take them in with you. And then you sit down and you go, by the end of this, I want to know X, Y, Z. But other than that, I'm not going to put any shape on this. Um, John Ronson does that. He doesn't even really, he was saying, he doesn't even, um, he doesn't necessarily write questions in advance. He just, he prefers to just go in and the the tangents that people will take you on will often be much more informative or revealing and useful for your story rather than what you thought the prearranged questions would lead you to. And if you provide people with the space to do that and then follow them there, um, you'll end up at some some gold. And he also offered offered the chestnut, which is if you forget or you're not sure or you you stumble, just say why. Or just say why to something because it'll get right. <laughs> Yeah, it will buy you at least another minute or two. Smashing advice, Ollie. Today has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. That's all right, Jacob. I really appreciate you um, asking me on. Thank you. An interesting talk with Ollie there, and many things stand out to me. What Joe Media does well is it pays attention to what makes people share content. More often than not, it's because their position on the story resonates with their audience on some level. Clipping up a quote or reworking the angle of a story can make a huge difference to how the story is received, all because it changes how the audience will react to that information. Just something to think about. Remember, we are changing the frequency of our podcast from weekly to fortnightly, so you can look forward to another episode in two weeks' time. If you like what you heard today, you can check out all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. If you want to get in touch or feature on the show, you can drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that is all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.